I normally don't start with uh, business, but let me give you a little piece of insight into the business of what's happening around here. It seems awfully dark in here today, doesn't it? Maybe it's just me. I, I thought, sure, I could get an amen or something out of that. But our properties committee is hard at work in a number of different ways in here, as you can tell. Um, but we have a, a, a lighting project that is not quite finished. And so because of the way this uh, sanctuary is designed, when it's cloudy outside, then it's a little darker in here anyway. So just be aware that we're not trying to keep you in the dark, either literally or figuratively, about what's happening. There's a few other things that you'll notice in the coming days. But again, our, our properties committee has been hard at work, and we appreciate what they've been doing to try to help us uh, always put our best foot forward, okay? Maybe we should just pray and go home, huh? (laughs) All right, Matthew chapter 13 is where we will be today. Just a few moments, we'll read our text. But let me start off with a, a, um, a definition for you. From dictionary.com, imposter means this, a person who practices deception under an assumed character, identity, or name. Once again, an imposter is a person who practices deception under an assumed character, identity, or name. And as we look back through history, we will find that history is littered with examples of imposters. For instance, one close to home for us, just almost exactly 10 years ago to the day, a young man who said he was 15 years old and an orphan from Haiti stepped off of a Greyhound bus in Odessa, Texas, claiming that he was an orphan and claiming that he came from Haiti, what he really wanted to do was just fit into a community somewhere and pursue his passion, which was basketball. As a 15-year-old, that pushed him into the high school ranks. And one of my classmates from my graduating class at at Odessa High School, really the best high school in Odessa, I'll just add. Um, (laughs) The story will prove that in some measure. Anyway, their head basketball coach for their varsity team was a guy that I graduated with. And so this young man, 15-year-old Jerry Joseph, began to make his name in the community, make his place in that high school community. Danny Wright, that varsity coach, made place for Jerry in his own life. He just kind of adopted him into his own life and adopted him into his varsity basketball team at Odessa Permian. And Jerry Joseph began to just kind of settle in. He, he settled in so well that he even went to a church in one of the churches in Odessa has a record that he was baptized there. And according to the interview with 2020 from ABC News, he said this after his baptism, I mean, the new Jerry, everything from before was just gone off of me. I felt brand new. 2020 goes on to explain that Jerry Joseph felt brand new partially because he was brand new. In fact, his name was Gerdich Montemer. He was a 21-year-old college dropout. He had 
been born in Haiti, but he made his way to Florida, played high school basketball at a particular high school in Fort Lauderdale area, and his gig was finally up after almost a year when his basketball team went to Arkansas to play in one of these larger tournaments. And a team from Florida had some guys on it who recognized that Jerry Joseph was actually not himself. History is littered with imposters. Church history is not exempt from that. If we take just a quick trip down memory lane, it doesn't seem like it was all that long ago, but in fact, it was some 40 years ago plus a few months when a guy named the Reverend Jim Jones, who had, had founded the People's Temple of Guyana, was responsible either directly or indirectly for the death of over 900 people when those at his private religious community were enticed to drink cyanide-laced flavor aid. History is loaded with imposters. And the church is not exempt from that. And so today what we want to do is see what Jesus has to say about imposters because this little parable, the next that we look at in our series entitled Slanted where Jesus is teaching something about the nature of the kingdom of God, he comes to this one in Matthew chapter 13. It's one of seven in this chapter. It's really one of those famous chapters among Bible scholars because it is packed full with parables that teach us something. It is a very intense teaching session that Jesus is conducting here. So in chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, we read his parable. And he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his men or his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he, the master, said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them, that is, the weeds? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, eat into my barn. We drop down to verses 26 and following, uh, excuse me, 36 and following, where we find that Jesus explains this because the, the disciples didn't quite get it. Verse 36, and then he left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. 
So what we find here, at least in part, and there's way too much in this parable for me to unpack all of it today, so we'll do a little more tonight in our Bible study that we're using to follow up on these and teach a little bit about how to handle parables. But what we really find, one of those big overarching truths of this particular parable is that appearances can be deceiving. Let's play along together now. The old adage says, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then... Okay, all I heard was nothing. So, let me finish the old adage. Then it must be a duck. I don't know who came up with that. I tried to research that. I couldn't find it anywhere. But whoever it was clearly came along before computer graphics and green screens. Because you could go to the movies and it looks like Iron Man is really flying through the sky, but Robert Downey Jr. is not capable of that. Looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It might not necessarily be a duck. That's what Jesus seems to be teaching here. So he picks up this theme of appearances can be deceiving And he addresses what is a growing problem with his disciples, not between him and his disciples. Maybe I should have said that it's a growing problem for his disciples. Because what we find beginning in chapter 12 and moving forward is that these disciples are beginning to have a little bit of a, a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding of how the opposition that is on the rise against Jesus could be coming from the religious leaders. If you go back and read the first part of chapter 12, it stretches all the way through this and other places through the gospel, you will find that in the early days, the popularity of Jesus was so overwhelming that people just came from everywhere. By the time he gets uh, pointed toward the cross in that latter stage, that has died down some, and a lot of that is because of this opposition that comes from the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. So it's, it's almost as if the, the disciples are saying, why would those guys be against Jesus? And Jesus is in the process of trying to help them understand the nature of the kingdom of God. And in that particular context, he spins this tale that gives a critical truth about the kingdom of heaven. So for the second time in this particular chapter... Jesus uses a parable taken from the agricultural world. We've already preached the one that's in the earlier part. I won't say anything about that to say uh, today other than to say that common things are there's this, this farm or what we would call a farm at least, and there are seeds involved and there are crops that are involved. And in this particular case, Jesus uses this analogy of a comparison between the wheat and the weeds. And in doing so, what he teaches his disciples in modern language for us is what you see is what you get is not always true. Now, he he uses a particular kind of weed in this discussion. And scholars tell us as we look backwards that this particular weed, which is called darnel, is one that has great similarity in appearance to wheat. In other words, when this particular uh, weed is sown by the enemy, the intent is for it to be disguised for a while. 
As a matter of fact, those two plants look so close to one another in appearance that it's not until they start getting to the maturing stage of that particular plant until you can really tell the difference. But once it gets to that phase, it is critically different, and at the end, it's downright deadly for the wheat and for the farmers, potentially. So before we go any further talking about the background of the parable, let's see what we can wear in what we've already looked at. I think I would say it this way. that the, the, we, we have three different uh, implications of this parable for us in modern-day life, Christian life, that is. Here's the first one. It's simply, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled by what you see. Uh, let me say that a different way. It, neither everyone out there nor everyone in here are authentic authentic in their Christian experience. Neither everyone out there or in here are necessarily authentic, even though they may look like they are. We, we can go to the out there part of it. That's pretty easy for us to see. But one of my favorite uh, New Testament book of Acts stories occurs in Acts chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'll read a couple of verses, but uh, we won't be here long. But in Acts chapter uh, 19, what we find is the apostle Paul is working his way through the Roman empire, telling people about Jesus Christ. He's not just telling them about Jesus Christ. He's doing some of the same things that Jesus did. And the miraculous part of him comes to the surface here, or not of him, but of what he's done, comes to the surface in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. Even it says that some of his handkerchiefs or aprons that he had touched when it was put on other people, there was some healing that was happening. By the way, that might be one of the passages that some of these modern-day guys claim are theirs. But we come down a little bit, and that becomes such a prevalent thing that there are other people some people, this may surprise you, but there are some people inside the church who want to make money off of God's people. Everybody that you see is not necessarily authentic, as we've been saying. And so as we come to this in Acts chapter 19, I'm going to start reading verse 13, but really verse 14 and following is where we need to be. So in verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. In other words, these guys were professional exorcists but they weren't Christian. And so here's what they would say. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Here's our text, verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? It gets better. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You got to love that story, unless you're a son of Sceva, of course. Neither everyone out there nor everyone in here is necessarily authentic in their Christianity. Those guys, much like many others in our world today, know how to use religious jargon. They know how to speak the language, if you will, to talk the talk. 
some people who are out there are able to do that. But what this parable teaches us is that just because someone uses kingdom language doesn't mean that they are, are authentic members of the body of Christ. If that's not disconcerting for you, then maybe we should double down a little bit on the back half of that little statement I've been making, and that is that everyone in here is not necessarily authentic. I don't know who it was. I tried to research this too. I don't know who it was. I have to give my dad credit for it, I guess, because that's where I heard it. I don't know who started this statement, but I remember the first time I heard it, it made enough of an impact on me that it caused me to really kind of commit it to memory pretty close to immediately. Here it is. When you go to look for the devil in church, don't forget to look behind the pulpit, which is why we don't have a pulpit today. We just have a stand. (laughs) You know, if you've been involved in church life for any length of time, that everyone who populates any given church, everyone is not necessarily authentic. We wear the right clothes and we go to the right classes and we even speak the right language sometimes. But everyone inside the church is not automatically authentic. I like to say, and I have said since I've been here, actually long before that, but I've said it a lot since I've been here with our staff and others, and that is, and I think I even preach some of this in some of our values discussion, that when we are dealing with somebody, if, if in doubt about them, trust them. Don't default to distrust with people. That's a big statement and requires a lot of unpacking, but You don't need to default to not trusting somebody unless you have a reason not to trust them. And so I think part of what Jesus is saying for us here is that we need to make sure that we're looking uh, in a critical way, not, not in a critical tear somebody down kind of a way, but in a way that helps us to look at somebody who's populating the church and maybe even leading the church and say, is this person authentic or do they just look like that? Are they the wheat or are they the weeds of Jesus's parable? If that's disconcerting to you, first of all, it should be. If that bothers you that we're even having this discussion today, that Jesus even takes us to this discussion, I think it's important that we stop long enough and say, okay, so how is this so? How could that even be so? And some of, some of the reasoning, I'm not going to get into all that today, but just, just on, the, on the surface, I'll say this. It's an old, tired illustration. It's tired, tired, tired. So I'm going to use it one more time. Just because you find yourself in church regularly doesn't make you authentically Christian any more than hanging out in a garage makes you a car. But sometimes in our church thinking, we fall into a trap that says, well, I, you know, I go to church on a regular basis, whatever regular basis means. Or I, I teach a class, or I'm involved in this ministry, or I go on mission trips. Just because we do those things doesn't make us wheat. The weed that Jesus is talking about here was so similar to the good product 
that they couldn't even tell that it was different until it began to mature. So let's just wear that to say, even in our day and age, when I know that one of the favorite verses of Scripture for people outside the church and many inside the church, their favorite Scripture is the one that Jesus said, I think over in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not, lest ye be judged. They don't tend to like it when we quote another one that says, test the spirits to see if they are of God. We need to be discerning about this. I'll say it another way. Just because we adopt the cultural trappings of Christianity, even though it might make you appear to be authentic, it's not a true indicator of authenticity. Weeds look like wheat for a while. But in the end, the way to know the difference is by the fruit that they produce. Authentic Christianity bears authentic and authentically Christian fruit. We'll find that as we go a little bit further here, but let me just double down into the explanation here to let you see where I'm getting this. This darnell, this wheat that Jesus, I mean, excuse me, the weed that Jesus refers to here looks like wheat as it's growing up, but when it starts to mature, uh, it takes over a wheat field. And the fruit that it produces produces a poison that makes the wheat unmarketable at first, uh, unusable at the end, and the long-term effect is that it ruins a farmer of wheat. The darnell, the weed, has a root system that goes deeper and stronger than what the weed is. And so over a period of time, that particular weed destroys the crop. That's, there, there's a disturbing application for us in that. Jesus uses these together, and essentially what he says is, there are imposters out there. Be discerning is the first implication that we have. Here's the second implication that we draw from this, and this one is a little bit disconcerting for us as well. The implication number two is that we must coexist. We, the wheat, must coexist with those weeds. The truth we're working from is that there's a real difference between imposters and being authentic, and the implication here is that we cannot, please hear me with both ears now, we cannot withdraw from non-kingdom people. I, I know in our day especially, when we're alarmed about what we see out there, that the tendency for us is to pull in here and build big walls around our churches that say we're going to be nice um, and hang out. Jesus will not allow that. Look again in his explanation of this. If we think that Jesus is talking just about inside the church, and I've already said that it's true out there as much as it's true in here, but some think that Jesus is just talking about the church here in this particular parable. They can't do that and still hold to verse 38 where he explains this. The field is 
the world. The picture here is that Jesus plants us out there. You know, you know how I know that's still true? Not a single one of you, including the staff, live in this church building. Now, some of our staff believe we live up here because they're up here working all the time. Some of them are. But none of us make our home in here. This is a place to which we travel so that we can come and do whatever it is that you want to come and do here. But the reality is we live out there, whether east side, west side, central, northeast, wherever in the borderlands you live, that's where you're planted. Wherever your job is, that's where you're planted. Wherever your school is, that's where you're planted. Jesus is very intentional in pointing out the fact that this parable is about living in the world for us as Christian people. Historically, we struggle with that. I say historically because we can go back into the earliest days of Christianity, not long after the book of Acts finishes out and Luke writes the final sentence of that particular book, and not long after that and as the Roman Empire began to uh, allow for Christianity and eventually became uh, one of those uh, endorsed religions, if you will, of the, of the Roman Empire, uh, there was that set of Christian people that did not believe that it was possible for them to be as holy as God wanted them to be inside groups of people and in villages and communities. And so our desert fathers and eventually even some desert mothers made their way out into the countryside and set up shop alone. Their reasoning was, I can't be holy if I'm with all of those dirty, rotten, no good sinners. Now, I didn't see dirty, rotten, no good anywhere in my research, but I see the attitude everywhere in the research. That practice didn't stop in the second century. It stretched all the way into the 21st century, and we find ways for us to... Hear me say, hear me say this again. We find ways for ourselves, for us to be disobedient to our call to be salt and light in the dark world. When I lived in Halfway, Texas, our house sat at the corner of a commercial farm. And I know that that farm was at least a mile square. It may have been bigger than that, but I know that it was at least a mile square. And we lived right on the corner of that. And that farm ended about five yards from the back of my house. While I lived there, I had the opportunity to watch that particular farmer put a, you know, rotate some crops. And so he planted cotton out there, and that was, that was okay. Uh, when he planted corn, though, I learned some lessons, spiritual lessons to be exact. Because I used to love to walk out in Plainview. It's kind of like parts of El Paso. You know, you can see for days out there and uh, just flat and nothing much to it. And uh, because they're farms, there's no trees or anything. And so several times right after they would plant that... Um, uh, and make the furrows and all that, I would just walk out into the, the uh, field. It was a great experience. And so <laughs> once the corn got, corn got up, and corn, you can almost see it grow, and you certainly can hear it grow on, on some nights, but uh, as that corn grew up, I would take walks out in there, and then, one, and then I stopped, and then one day I got out there, and the corn was way above my head, and I thought, I'm going to walk out in there. And I got about 10 yards into that and was thoroughly lost 
Now, if I hadn't been standing in a furrow and I couldn't look backwards and go where I had just come from, I might still be out in that field. Here's what I learned. When those corn plants grow the way they plant them there, it looks like one solid plant for a square mile. Because as the plant grows up, those leaves come across and they begin to get intertwined, not so much intertwined, but at least overlapping one another. And you lose sight of where the path is through that. And so I found myself out in that cornfield rubbing shoulders with corn plants and the mice that live out there with them. What Jesus is telling us with this parable is that we must adopt a lifestyle that rubs shoulders with the weeds. Now, I say that guardedly. Not guardedly because of the truth, but the truth of it is we stand on that. But we need to be guarded about how we do that because if we're not careful, we end up becoming more like the weeds than the wheat. This is not a sacrifice of holiness. This is the intentionality of being out in the field. Jesus says the field is the world and we are planted there. We must rub shoulders with non-Christians. I like to ask this question from time to time. I don't want an answer from you. I just want you to let the question rattle around for a while. Who are the non-Christian people in your circle that if you don't take the good news of Jesus Christ to them, it's likely they won't hear it? See, I operate from this conviction that God has strategically planted each of us in a circle of people who desperately need life. If you don't have that kind of people in your circle, you need to rethink your circles. That's the second implication that we must coexist. That's the slant, by the way, in this particular parable. Because typically, and I've done enough garden farming through the years with my my father and his mother, they used to love to make my brother and I go out and do free labor in the garden. But I understand from that experience that typically you don't leave weeds, excuse me, weeds with the crop. When you see weeds coming up, you're supposed to pull them out. And so the slant in Jesus' parable here is that he says, stay out there. That makes it one of the primary teachings of this. There are several primary teachings. That's one of the primary ones here. Jesus hides that truth in this, and he comes at us from the side because he knows that it's difficult for us to hear that. Well, I'm out of time. Third implication very quickly because this is the one that helps bring balance to what I just said. If you are prone to freaking out just a little bit about some of the stuff I've said this morning, don't miss this. The third implication is you have to keep your eyes on the master. You have to keep your focus on Jesus Christ. That's throughout this. He's one of the main players, if you will, in this because we find that at the beginning, he's the one who says plant the field. At the next step of that, then when the workers find that there's something wrong, they come to him and they say, what do we do about this? They have their own says At the end of the whole process, I will still be in charge 
of the harvest. Do not ever lose sight of the master. As you work your way and walk your way through this world that is full of imposters, people who look like kingdom people, but at the end they just don't have the credentials. Oh, I haven't talked about the credentials, have I? Wheat, when it's fully matured, produces fruit. The reality is that that authenticator of kingdom people is that they produce Jesus-like fruit. That might be fruit of the Spirit in you and how you handle yourself, love, joy, peace, patience, you know those. It might certainly be other Christians that God uses you to reach them to be Christians. Whatever the case, you can't do this if you don't hold tight to the master and if you don't keep your eyes on Jesus. So at the end of the day, don't be an imposter. And don't be disheartened by imposters. Keep your eyes on Jesus and get out there and be salt and light. Let's pray. As we pray, the question for you is, where do you find yourself in this passage? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you live for Jesus Christ? Where are you in this? And where are you in the message for the day? If you don't know Christ and you're not really sure where you are with him today, I would invite you right now at this point of the invitation of this service uh, that you settle that question. Where are you with Jesus Christ? And if you don't know him as your Savior, then that's where you start. You let him transform your life. Many of us have taken that step, but we've settled into a nice cultural Christianity where we say the right things, we do the right things most of the time, and we call it good. But in Jesus' parable here, the end result of all of it is fruit. So what kind of fruit do you have in your life? Father, change lives now is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing together? You come.